Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John. We are going through 1 John, and the Apostle John is writing from the island of Patmos. He is exiled, and he is addressing a false teaching that is coming. They're trying to redefine what a Christian is. I think it's so appropriate for us now because most or, or many churches do not define biblically what a Christian is. It is the most basic teaching. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? What, would you join with me in prayer? Christ has defeated every sin. Cast all your burdens now on him. Oh, Father, we believe this. He has, in fact, paid for all of our sins if we are in Christ. He has purchased us, paid with his blood. Even as we are thinking and remembering this, uh, this morning, we pray, Father, that your son would be exalted, that we would hear his word, that it would penetrate our hearts, that um, his propitiatory work on the cross would be emblazoned in our minds and in our hearts. Father, we pray you would do this work. In Jesus' name, amen. I was, I was uh, grappling with one of these guys um, back in Benicia, uh, Northern California, and he heard I was going to plant a church, and after we were grappling, he was this short, he was about this tall, he, I had a good 70 or 80 pounds on him, and he was just choking me all the live long day, right, and I was tapping all the time, but after we were exhausted, and I was sweating, he was sweating, we were leaning against the wall, he said, I heard you're going to go plant a church, and I said, yeah, who told you, right? And he goes, oh, such and such. And then he goes, and he looks at me with no prompting, okay? No prompting. All that we're doing is praying for opportunities, right? He looks at me and he says, I need to get right with God. And he starts crying. This guy was choking me. <laughs> One second, now he's saying, I need to get right with God. And I told him, well, I knew a little bit of his background. He was involved with a cult, the same cult uh, Brother Mike Bagalso was saved out of. Okay. And this cult um, basically took your sins and shoved them in your face to control you, to manipulate you, to cause you to say, oh, I, I may not be saved, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And so he was always unsure. He was kind of worn out of church in his conception of what church was because someone was taking his sins and broadcasting it to him all the time to make him do what he, he didn't want to do. And so he never really had assurance of salvation. He wasn't really sure where he stood with God. And so he came and he was weeping and he says, I got to get right with God. And there we were covered in sweat. Not knowing his full story. I didn't know his full story. His whole journey. And I, I just told him. Because I know it's true of everyone. Right? I told him Christ is more willing to receive you than you are to go to him. Go to him. Go to him. He will forgive you of all of your sins. And 
I said that to him, and I said, you come to church. Come to service. We're having our send-off service um, in Vallejo. They're sending us off. And he came, and the gospel was shared with him. And I think some friends are still talking to him about the gospel. Because what he was taught was not a free gospel. What he was taught was something shackling. What he was taught was man's religion. What he was taught was not the Christ of scriptures. You see, when God gets a hold of you, and when you know what Christ has done on the cross, the Christian is set free. The Christian is changed forever. Their life is different, radically different. And this morning, we're going to go through just one verse. So we're going to be in 1 John for 20 years, I think. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. And he, that is Christ, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would be fully convinced that all your sins have been paid. God gave this passage to you this morning so that you'd be fully convinced that all your sins have been paid. Now, John is writing and he is delineating what a Christian is. And as we have seen in chapter 1, he says, what does he say in chapter 1? If we say that we have fellowship, verse 6, with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, when Christ grabs a hold of you, your life is radically different. You hate the sin that you used to do and you love righteousness. You no longer want to walk in darkness. You want to walk in light. You want to follow after Christ. And after he has said this, this radical change that happens in the Christian, we call this regeneration, where the new Impulses of the heart desires Christ, desires scripture, desires fellowship. The new impulses of the heart are radically different. He now says to the Christian, and even if you do sin, not as a habit, not as a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle, but even if you have instances of sin, he says in chapter, chapter 2, verse 1, you have an advocate. You have someone who will go between you and the Father. You have someone who's going to be in your stead. And we saw that this advocate will go between you and the Father. And he is there forever and ever. He ever lives to intercede for his saints. And so now, we're going to look at the basis of his advocacy. The basis of why he intercedes for us. It's not simply because he thinks it's a nice thing to do. It's not simply because, as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said, it's God's job to do this. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist, he said, uh, you know what, if there is a God and I am wrong, you know, it's God's job to forgive. No, there must be a dealing with sin. And so, John lays the very precious groundwork, the foundation, the basis by which you are forgiven. So you never forget it, Christian. Don't ever forget it. Let it be the first thing on your lips. The gospel is on my lips. Let it be the first thought in my head. 
Because even if even me, as I wake up in the day, and when I wake up in the morning, I gotta have the gospel preached to me. I have to know I'm forgiven. I have to rely on the cross again. Now, because he would desire, God would desire that you be fully convinced that all of your sins have been paid, you are not to be ruled by fear. You are not to be ruled by guilt. And if you guys know me, I don't like to manipulate people. I don't like, if God is not working in your heart, God's not working in your heart. I'm not going to twist it so that he would. I'm simply going to preach the word of God and pray that it works. And this is how Christ would call us. He would soften our hearts. But you're not to be ruled by fear. You're not to be ruled by guilt. You're not to be paralyzed because of your sins. God doesn't want you living this way. Did you mess up? Did you sin? Repent, turn to him. And rely on this truth that your sins are paid for, Christian. When you are fully convinced that all your sins have been paid on the cross, this is incredibly practical, brothers and sisters. Whoever says theology is not practical does not know a thing. Okay, They have not a clue. This goes right to the heart of living. When you are fully convinced that all your sins have been paid on the cross, this conviction dramatically affects you in two different ways. This is what the text says. Okay? Having full assurance that all your sins have been paid allows you to, number one, if you're following on the notes, if you want some notes, does anyone want any notes? Does everyone have? Anyone want? Okay. Having full assurance that all your sins have been paid allows you to, number one, live freely because Jesus' sacrifice is enough for God. It allows you to live freely because Jesus' sacrifice is enough for God. And he starts off here, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Can you say this word with me? Propitiation. Propitiation. And the reason why we want to say this word, this should be a blessed word for you, Christian. Sometimes we have a dumbing down of Christianity where we have all these complicated words and we just simplify it. And I believe in simplifying, but there are certain words that we have to rise to learn. Okay? And this word propitiation is so important. Why? It is the basis of why you are saved. It is the basis, if you know Christ, of how you know you are forgiven. It is the basis that you know when your eye closes in death and when the dew is on that cold brow, you're going to be with him in heaven. Okay? The definition of propitiation. To put it simply, in the scriptures, the definition of propitiation is the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay? What does propitiation mean? Technically, in Scripture, and we're going to look at some of this, so we're going to play a little bit of Bible study here. Okay? What is propitiation? It is the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We start out with it is the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. Why? Because when man fell, his mind, his heart, his will became distorted with sin. 
such that all he desires to do is not to seek after God, is not to seek after Christ, it is to seek after his own autonomy until Christ saves him, until Christ changes him. And so when the scriptures say that man is under wrath, what it's simply saying is because of the sin that is in that person's life, not just the acts of sin, but the sinful nature, it is deserving of wrath, deserving of judgment. Why? Because God himself is absolutely perfect. And he will not allow any imperfection, any sin, any defilement into his heaven. Every man is born under this judgment. Sometimes when I get to talk to some folks and there is some misunderstanding of the gospel, uh, I ask, hey, how did you become a Christian? Sometimes some people will say, well, you know, I was born a Christian. Yeah, I was born a Christian. I came out the womb. I was born a Christian. That already signals to me they have no understanding of what the real gospel is. Now, I'm not talking about someone who gets saved in childhood. I do believe that that, that, that does occur. But no one is born a Christian. In fact... When you're born, you're born under wrath. In John chapter 3, it says, John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He is already under judgment. And we already know this. As much as I love babies, I remember one preacher said it this way. You don't even have to tell the baby to sin. The baby can come into your house and tell everybody who's in charge. <laughs> I'm in charge, right? And from the beginning, even as the child grows, you don't have to teach them to say mine. This is mine. This is mine. This is mine. You don't have to teach them that. Why? Because the sin is now coming out of the heart, and it's showing itself in actions. And so mankind is fallen. The wrath of God is upon him. And God will have his payment. Yes, he will. He will have his payment. Right. In two ways. He will have his payment. What does it say in Romans? For the wages of sin is what? Death, that is spiritual separation from God forever. He will have his payment, and he has it in two ways. Either the eternal punishment of someone who refuses his love and decides for their own sin, their eternal punishment in hell forever and ever, or he will have his payment in the spent blood of his son. Now you got to think about this, okay? Every sin that was ever committed in the whole universe, every evil thought, every wicked deed will either has either been paid for in Christ or will be paid for in eternity in hell. And I for one am grateful that he has shown kindness to me and to you. Isn't that wonderful? That I don't have to pay it. 
That's why I have assurance. I don't have to pay it. People will say that's not fair. It's absolutely not fair. It's grace. If I got what was fair, I'd be in hell paying it. Amen? Now, what, does, what is this propitiation? Now, there's a picture of propitiation, and we have to see what this picture is. The picture of propitiation, the word for propitiation is hilasmos, okay? And the only reason why I tell you that it's hilasmos, just because it's fun to say, right? The only reason why I tell you is because in the Old Testament, there is a, uh, there's such a, in, in uh, antique times, right? In old times, there is a Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, they translated one of the verse, one of the words that we see in the Ark of the Covenant, they translate it to hilasmos, right? What does that mean? It is supposed to be a picture of what is going on. And this is going to help us understand what propitiation is. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8, okay? It is the second book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, right? In Exodus chapter 8. And now we're going to see Oh, excuse me. I wrote it. I, I typed it wrong. Exodus 25. Sorry. Exodus 25. Exodus 25. I apologize. In Exodus chapter 25. Yeah, it was too early. Exodus chapter 25. Notice he says here, and you notice in the Old Testament, there's so many distinctions made of outward appearance, okay? In the New Testament, it's almost non-existent, right? It's all internal, isn't it, right? In Exodus chapter 25, we notice in verse 10, it says, they shall construct an ark of acacia, wood two and a half cubits long, Overlay it with pure gold. You shall make poles of acacia wood. Verse 17. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits long. One and a half cubits wide. Verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the one other one at the other end, with the mercy seat at its ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings. You shall put the mercy seat, verse 21, on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I give to you. There I will meet, verse 22, there I will meet with you. Man, that is sweet. From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you all that I give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now, the word that is hilasmos in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and in other places in the New Testament, has been translated to be mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, here's the significance, okay? One time a year, the high priest would go in, and we, under, we know the story, okay? 
he would go and make atonement for the sins of Israel one time a year. He would go and take blood of an unblemished lamb. And no one else can go there. It had to be a high priest. In fact, they would tie a cord around his leg just in case he died. If he died in there, that way they can pull him out without having to go in. Okay. It was the holiest of holy places. The high priest would go in as a mediator. Are you following this? Okay. As a mediator for the people of Israel, for their sins. He would go in, take the blood of the lamb, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Sprinkle it on the hilasmos. Can you see that? Right? And that would be a picture of forgiveness and of atonement and of payment for God's righteous requirements and His righteous wrath over the people. But the priest had to do it every year. Why? Because it was only a picture of the halasmos to come. It was only a picture of Christ to come. So what is the mercy seat? The mercy seat is the place where blood is spent for your sins. And the mercy seat was a picture of what Christ would do in fulfillment on the cross. Such that Verse 22, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. In other words, brothers and sisters, okay? You got to see the imagery. John is pulling from the Old Testament, okay? And he is saying, God is now near to you. You are near to God. Because of what Christ has done. And it is a better sacrifice than what the priests gave. The priests would sacrifice the blood of bulls and oxen and lambs. Now Christ, he sacrifices not bulls, not oxen, not lambs. He sacrifices his own blood. And pours it out, as it were, on the mercy seat. So that he can draw you forever close to God. We can just die. Amen. I can just die. Because I'm fulfilled in Christ. And now we see the fulfillment of propitiation, the fulfillment of this halasmos. The shadow of the Old Testament is now fulfilled in Christ. Let's see how that is, okay? Colossians chapter 2. Look at Colossians chapter 2. It has this same idea. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. I love this text. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14. Now he's going to use an accounting term, okay? Having canceled out the certificate of debt. What is the certificate of debt? It's an invoice. It's an invoice, okay? An unpaid invoice. You get this invoice, and it says what? Net 30 or net 60. You have to pay it, right? This invoice is different. What is it? He says here, 
This invoice says, it is a certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which are hostile to us. He's saying, in this invoice, brothers and sisters, all your sins have been recorded. Every thought, every deed, every action, every sin you think that God does not see, He saw. And it's on this certificate of debt. You're not fooling anyone. And He says, because of the blood of Christ, He says here, in chapter, what, uh, in chapter uh, 2, verse 14, he cancels it. He pays for it. It was, it says here, hostile against you. If you are honest with the text and honest with scripture and you see your own sin in scripture, you will start to understand that all those things are evidence against you. You have no right standing with God unless someone pays the bill. It has to be a perfect payment. It's got to be the blood of Christ himself. Christ completely canceled the debt. Romans chapter 3. Christ publicly satisfied God's wrath. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. John Piper calls this the uh, center of Scripture. It's not the center in your Bible. It's probably Psalms is the center, right? But what he's talking about is this is the white hot center of Scripture. This is what it means. The redemption of man through the spent blood of Christ, right? If you want to know what the Bible means, that's it. If you want to know what Christianity is, that's it. This is what it is. He says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And if you don't understand this, this text, notice he says, all have sinned, right? Notice verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He says, all those who believe, who are those? Christians. Then he says, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In context, who's the all? A lot of times we use this text for unbelievers in evangelism. You know, all have sinned, and that's true, right? He's saying you. All have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. Now, in my heart of hearts, I would like to say I'm the perfect husband. I would like to say I'm the perfect father and the perfect pastor. In my heart of hearts, I am falling short and I know it. My thoughts, my actions, the way I, my words come out. I'm still falling short. Why? Because God's glory demands perfection. He says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but praise the Lord for verse 24. Amen. He says, being justified, that is acquitted, right? Counted as innocent. Called innocent as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How? How is this made possible? How can the righteous judge acquit me? Because if there's, there's nothing, we, we look at disdain with judges who are bribed, correct? A judge who acquits 
a guilty felon because they've been bribed, right? We would say that is an unjust judge. Well, then how can this judge not judge me and still be righteous? There's the question, right? If God is, demands absolute perfection, and if I am going to be judged before him, and I know I'm guilty, how does he count me innocent and still be righteous? This is how the, this is how the Bible is going to answer it. Notice he says here, being justified as a gift by his grace, how? Through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for me. How? Whom God displayed publicly as a what? Propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration. And now he's going to answer this question. I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he, God the Father, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can the righteous God, how can he still be just and count me free? He can do it because his son paid the debt. And now, Christian, you never have to. Why are you feeling guilty? Why are you staying in the mud, as it were, if you've sinned? Why don't you repent and get up? Because if you are his, it's been paid for. Amen. Why are you still hanging around the restaurant? Someone else paid the bill. You're still hanging around. Why are you hanging around the jail cell? You're being set free. Why are you hanging around? Why are you walking around with guilt? When Christ has set you free. Is this practical? Oh, it's absolutely, absolutely practical. Now, but this is not just some kind of legal transaction, some accounting transaction. This is actually, this theology is love. It's cosmic love towards you. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter four and verse. Let's start with nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that he might live through him. Verse 10. In this is love. Okay, how am I going to understand your love, God? How am I going to fully comprehend? How am I going to value it? Okay. A lot of times when folks, when you address the problem of sin and you say, hey, you need to repent, turn to Christ. They say, well, isn't God love? He absolutely is love. But they have no idea what love is. Okay? They think love means kind of not looking at your imperfections or your sins. Kind of just kind of winking his eye. Kind of like being Santa Claus and giving you what you want. Right? Here's what love is, brothers and sisters. Chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us. We are not the determiner of what love is. 
We don't get to decide or arbitrarily define what love is. We are not the measure of love. Okay? He is. He says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, what? To be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, His demonstration of His love and His care for you is that He sent His Son to die for you. To bleed for you. That is love. Now it makes sense. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved that he gave. Gave to what? So that you could meet him? So that you could have a party with him? No. He gave so that he would die. Okay? He gave his son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now notice the beneficiaries of the propitiation. It says for our sins. You could turn to Isaiah 53. I won't turn there right now. Just understand. You should highlight how many times it says for us, for our sins, for us, for our sins. He died for our sins. It is correct to say Jesus died for me. Oh. Amen. Oh, you belong to him and he belongs to you. And that's sweet. Jesus died for me. Now, there's some applications to this. There are some applications. Notice you could with understanding what propitiation is and understanding that all your sins have been paid. Okay, you can live with a clear conscience. You actually can live with a clear conscience. As you confess and repent any instances of sin, you could live knowing that you are right with God. No matter what. I mean, some folks come in ministry. You have to understand folks come from different backgrounds. And some folks have some lousy parents. Lousy, lousy parents. Where they would just constantly berate them. Or constantly say, you're no good. Or constantly say you're wicked. Or constantly say you're, you're hopeless or helpless. Or you'll never amount to anything. And their conscience is vexed. And they walk around with a hunch. Spiritually speaking. The Bible says you don't have to walk that way anymore. You're free. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. And you're going to see this connection of propitiation one more time. To the way you live. Okay, To the way you live. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest, here it is, okay? Hebrews is the great transition book. It tells us how to interpret the Old Testament, okay? Of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He's the priest that sacrificed himself, right? He entered through the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? Now, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Notice how the writer of Hebrews finishes. He cleanses your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And I can tell that guy 
as we were grappling and we were done, you don't have to feel guilty that you didn't do enough. You don't have to feel guilty that you're not good enough. You don't have to feel guilty that you're not righteous enough. Christ's righteousness is enough. Quit beating yourself up. If God the Father, listen to me, Christian. This is so important, okay? If God the Father is satisfied in the death of Christ, why aren't you? Drown it in the cross. Have you fallen off the horse? Repent. Get back up. You're still forgiven. Amen. Christ didn't undie for you. Amen. It's still paid. The debt is canceled. So he clears your conscience. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. It allows you to draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18. Notice he says, Now there is forgiveness of these things. There's no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, how do we have confidence? Why do we come close? To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Why? Who made it possible? What made it possible? The sacrifice that Christ did. Okay. By a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Verse 22. Let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Brothers and sisters, you have been cleansed. You can draw near to God. You know, the only thing that's preventing you from getting closer to God is you. It's been purchased. It's been free. It's been given to you freely. Draw near to him. Another application of propitiation is that you can confidently pray to God. Look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, what does the priest do? He dies for our sins and has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16. Therefore, what? Let us draw near with confidence to where? The throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, the blood makes it possible for you to ask help from God. You can pray. Let's move on. Let's move on. Having full assurance that all your sins have been paid for allows you to live freely because Jesus' sacrifice is enough for God. It's done. It's paid for. But secondly, assurance that your sins have been paid in full allows you to preach freely because Jesus' sacrifice is enough for all. It allows you to preach freely because Jesus' sacrifice is enough for all. Go to 1 John and notice he says here, and he wants you to know this in verse, 1 John chapter 2, 
he says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And then he gives a truth so that he knows that it will affect you in the way we spread the gospel. He says this, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He doesn't, the Bible never just gives truth for us to simply, oh, okay, I understand that, that's good. The Bible gives us truth so that we would act, so that we would believe, so that we would trust, so that there would be a response. And the response for this is us knowing that Christ's blood was efficient to save us and sufficient for the world, right? It is enough for not just me. It is enough for the one who places faith in Christ as well. Now notice, he says, we are able to do this. Now we have a freedom, okay? I could share this now because I know that there's enough, right? There was a... a I remember one of my relatives, they're part of a cult that only believes 144,000 people are going to heaven. There's, that's it. It's, it's closed. I mean, there's, there's no hope for me, right? But now I know there's a hope. Why? Because Christ's blood is more than sufficient than for 144,000. And so he says it, he says it's, not just for ours, but also for the whole world. Now, what does this mean for the whole world? What is the world? Okay, what is the world? We've got to approach this, okay? What, let me talk about what the world does not mean first, okay? The world does not mean everyone without exception. Okay? I think sometimes when we come to the text, we think, oh, the world means everyone without exception, okay? That means Every person on this whole world that we sit on, that we land on, that, we, that we're standing on as we're circling the sun, right? Every person's sins are paid for. That's not what it means. How do we know that's not what it means? First John says, First John was written to what? To tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, okay? Secondly, if that were true, then we would have people with sins paid for but not saved. Makes absolutely no sense, right? Thirdly, there are verses that tell us that Christ paid for individuals. He paid for his church, right? We know that Isaiah 53, if you go back there, he says he was, he was stricken for us. He was slain for us. He was beaten for us. There's a direct correspondence. But notice in Ephesians, oh, your favorite book, Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. This text is about husbands. But notice in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. Uh, excuse me, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and what? Gave himself up for whom? For, Mike says, for her. He died for her. He died for his bride. He died for the church. He died for believers. He died for the elect. He died for those who have been called to believe on him. You know what? Some people get upset at this. But just think about this, okay? 
when I got engaged, um, I put a ring on my bride's hand. Well, she's my bride now. I put a ring on her hand, okay? And uh, she was very grateful. She was excited, right? I, I think we were in Santa Barbara. Yeah, we were in Santa Barbara when I got on my knees, right? But you know what? One thing she didn't do? She did not say, that's not fair for all my other sisters <laughs> or all these other women. How come I'm picked? It's not fair for all those other girls. How could you pick me? It's not fair. Can you love them as well? No, she did not say that. Oh, you could ask her. She did not say that, right? Why? Because she was thrilled at the fact that I loved her. Propitiation, brothers and sisters, is God's proof through the blood of Christ that he loves you. Nothing will ever change that. So, as we, come in, as we come to a close and we figure out what this world means, a good definition, one commentator says, it is the earthly realm of mankind which God directed his reconciling love and provided propitiation. We see that in other, in other places, that this world is used in a general sense. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world first uh, in John chapter 1 verse 29 he's not saying that he has taken away the sin of every single individual without exception he's not saying that at all he's saying that he has taken away the sin of those who would believe in him in this world okay and he's just simply using the word world to say oh everyone there everyone there and we use language like that all the time such, such, such as if I, my wife gives me a list to go to the grocery. She gives me a list of maybe 10 or 15 things. And I always forget one, right? When I come back, she says, did you bring, it, did you bring all of it? She's not meaning the whole store without exception. She's meaning the ones on the list, correct? The world here is God's target of affection. That those who would come to him, it is, his, it is his speaking of it in general terms. It's all of this. But we know in scripture, right, as we wade out with other scriptures, that he is paid for his bride. Uh, it's also used in 1 Timothy 2. You'll see here, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Okay, between God and men. He's using the word men generally, meaning what? For those who would turn to him. And in Romans chapter 5, he says, Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals. He purchased for God with thy blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He bought men from every tribe. The world is signifying people from every category of men and women and child, right? So what, he's, what is he saying? That this propitiation was paid for all kinds of people who would put their faith in him. 
Why does it matter? It gives you confidence when you share the gospel. It gives you confidence in the power of the gospel to arrest because you know that he would, there are folks who would be saved. It gives you confidence in the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. And that's where we rest, brothers and sisters. Isn't it good to know we're forgiven? Father, we just pray this morning, we pray. Oh, it's so sweet. We pray that you would never let us forget this. May we dwell on it, preach it to each other, preach it to ourselves. My sins are in, were nailed on Calvary. Christ has defeated every sin. Help us to even contemplate and think on you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.